The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. This is Squawk Box. In your headlines, the U.S. shoots down a suspected Chinese spy balloon, drawing an angry response from Beijing as Secretary of State Antony Blinken cancels what would have been the Biden administration's first cabinet visit to China. I made clear that the presence of this surveillance balloon in U.S. airspace is a clear violation of U.S. sovereignty and international law, that it's an irresponsible act. Wall Street takes a step back after the January jobs report blows past forecasts, but tech stocks still see a five-week rally, the longest run since November 2021. Elsewhere, the yen dips as the market digest reports that one of the most dovish candidates, Masayoshi Amamiya, has been sounded out as a potential successor to Haruhiko Kuroda as the head of the BOJ. Plus, China's reopening and its thirst for oil could trigger producers to reconsider their output levels in the year ahead, according to the IEA. Meanwhile, Adani's stock slide enters a third week as Adani Enterprises reportedly postpones a bond sale. And Moody's downgrades its outlook on two of the group's companies. So, very good morning, everyone. We're all back in. We're all back in. What a dramatic set of headlines. Weren't bad, were they? Yeah, you, God, you, you growling your way through them. It's well, brilliant. I, know. I think Ted's Waking them all up. I think we do need a wake-up call first I thing this so. morning. Oh, my Absolutely. goodness me. So much going on. So much going on. And that's on. just Karen's social life. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's somewhat of a reset from what we wrapped up last week on uh, the data and the earnings. I mean, a ton of earnings. Now we've got geopolitics back in the mix. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 yeah, yeah. And, and we can start off with the fact, I know we're going to get to it later on, but right. every single economist out there mm. utterly, unambiguously missed by a country mile mm. the employment report headline figure. So well done to the whole economics community. You completely and utterly missed it. And a lot of the hedge funds are struggling to catch up with this rally as well, which is oh, uh, causing no. all sorts of ructions. But the hedge yeah. funds don't closet index the market. Don't be silly. No, Why would they ever just follow what the market's doing? Let's, um, let's kick off with the uh, headline balloon story then. Um, the U.S. has shot down this spy balloon. The U.S. military says it is working to recover remnants of this suspected Chinese surveillance balloon that was brought down over the weekend. A U.S. fighter jet fired on the balloon over the Atlantic just off South Carolina. The balloon put a further strain on relations between the U.S. and China, with Washington cancelling a visit to Beijing by U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken. Well, U.S. President Joe Biden says he took decisive action. On Wednesday, when I was briefed on the balloon, I ordered the Pentagon to shoot it down on Wednesday as soon as possible. They decided without doing damage to anyone on on the ground. They decided that the best time to do that was as it got over water outside within our within 12 mile limit. They successfully took it down. Well, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken told reporters that his visit to Beijing was cancelled due to the balloon, adding he considered it a, quote, clear violation of international law. We concluded that conditions were not conducive for a constructive visit at this time. 
In my call today with Director Wang Yi, I made clear that the presence of this surveillance balloon in U.S. airspace is a clear violation of U.S. sovereignty and international law, that it's an irresponsible act, and that the PRC's decision to take this action on the eve of my planned visit is detrimental to the substantive discussions that we were prepared to have. The Chinese government says the balloon was a civilian airship that accidentally made its way into U.S. airspace and accused Washington of overreacting, calling on it not to escalate tensions further. The U.S. ambassador has been summoned. Let's get to Sam, who's got more on this story for us. So um, I think a lot of the editorials have had fun with this story, talking about the deflation in the relationship between these two countries, Sam, but there is a serious point to all of this. Um, just tell us a little bit more about how the Chinese intend to take forward their protests. Yeah, the relationship going down like a lead balloon. We've heard everything today. Jeff, good morning to you. Of course, China, as you say, has insisted that this was an accident. It has repeatedly said this. Now, it came out again this morning and said that it had flown into, of course, U.S. airspace by mistake. And it is now urging the U.S. not to escalate these tensions and really ratchet up this situation. We, it was interesting. We were just speaking to Paul Hanley, who's a very avid China watcher and expert, of course. He he believes that China's response in the beginning was fairly measured. It did come out and apologise and said this was regrettable, but it wasn't until the US shot that balloon down, as you can see in these pictures here, that China's rhetoric really turned more aggressive. And what we've seen, as you mentioned, China saying that this was an overreaction. Uh, it has said that this was a civilian uh, balloon that was being used for scientific and weather research. It said that this had flown and drifted uh, away because of a westerly wind. So this was due to force majeure. It has slammed the US and politicians and even the media for hyping this up uh, to um, really discredit China. It's been interesting how this has been seemingly mocked in Chinese social media. Chinese citizens taking to Twitter like Weibo, comparing this to a giant full moon because, of course, it's Lantern Festival at the moment, even comparing it to a giant rice ball. Uh, so they've had a bit of uh, fun with this, but the US has taken this very seriously. Of course, in terms of a timeline, it was Thursday when this was announced that it had been hovering around the US for a number of days. Um, it was actually in and around Montana. That's where it came became quite concerning because this is a sensitive area which is home to some ballistic missile silos. There was some suggestion uh, that they wanted to shoot this down, but there were also some concerns from a safety perspective uh, that they didn't want to do that over land. They did want to wait till this uh, went over the sea uh, in order to do this. But uh, the big question is now what it means for the US-China relationship moving forward, because of course this was a weekend in which we were uh, expecting to see the US and China trying to figure out ways to manage their relationship and put up those guardrails, uh, but instead it was characterised by trading barbs, insults and accusations. Guys, back to you. At yeah, terrific, Sam. Thanks very much for, for rounding that up for us. Let's get to Reid Whitten, a partner at Shepherd. Mullen, that's a law firm. Reid is a specialist in international trade relations, cross-border transactions and technology. Reid, good to have you with us this morning. Let me just get your take on what you think this ultimately means then for the direction of travel in the relationship between these two key partners. It's a good question. Thank you for having me on this morning. Um, I, I don't think that the balloon is going to 
necessarily uh, <laughs> set relations back too much. I think that there's going to be some saber rattling. There's a long history of this, right? If you look back, you have talks coming up, whether it's peace talks, truce talks, economic talks, and then one side will try to push the diplomatic line just a little bit and see what the other side does to respond. And this is classic example. This is not a, a major threat, but it is clearly a step by China that that is to rattle the U.S.'s cage in the, in the U.S., uh, the U.S. took the measures to to take down the balloon and said, look, we're not going to have this talk. But I think both sides need to get back to the table. Right. Both sides economically need each other. And they and they think they're going to find a way to get back to discussions. There are so many odd things about this story. And of course, it, it's difficult not to, to feel that it's fairly humorous uh, in reality. I mean, the fact that we're talking about spying and something as low tech as a weather balloon that drifted across continental U.S., for what, 12, 13 days and President Biden uh, didn't decide to shoot it down until it got over water, which is which is understandable here. Um, is there any way that um, we can we can e effectively just dismiss this story as one of these peculiar anomalous issues that crop up in international relations occasionally and will be forgotten as quickly as it was uh, read at the breakfast table? Right. Well, I, <laughs> I mean, we can't dismiss it without a few good puns. And I think you guys did a great job at the top of the show on that. Um, but I, I, I do think that shooting down the balloon is almost an af afterthought. The, I think that both sides knew what was going on here. Both sides understood that this was a, a just a bit of a diplomatic test and the U.S. declined to continue talks. Uh, but I think that it's going to go pass by and we'll, we'll I mean, I think we'll remember it as as a as a kind of funny incident, again, because of the non-threatening nature of a of a balloon as a spy craft. Um, but I think that President Xi, you know, who's facing multiple economic issues at home is going to want to talk to to the U.S. I think the U.S. that needs China to be humming along uh, in order for global economics to work for the U.S. economy. Uh, is going to want to get back to the table. I don't think that there was going to be anything groundbreaking in Secretary Blinken's visit to, the, to China, but it was going to establish the means of communication at higher levels uh, between the two countries. And I think that they both need that economically. Reid, the story seems to go two directions, depending on who you listen to, the Americans versus the Chinese. I mean, the Chinese side, this could have been a, a means for data collaboration, you know, gathering information on the weather, something you could share as we all try and tackle climate change, potentially. If you look at the US side, the fact that this is not the first time there have been shorter duration balloons and gathering in the past, it's not just a one-off incident. And this particular balloon travelling over missile sites as well, this is serious from the American perspective, but very different opinions if you take a look the two sides i agree and i don't think it's not serious i don't mean to be glib about it not, notwithstanding the temptation to to work in some balloon puns um but they but i think that i think that the seriousness of it everything that that you you had in that quote from secretary blinken at the beginning of the show is true it, it is a violation of sovereignty uh it is it is a violation of international law and the u.s took it took measures to to bring down the balloon and i think that that's sort of the end of the incident. You say, all right, look, you you did that. And as as retribution for that, we're just not going to talk to you right now. And again, these are talks that that both sides really need, but China may need more. I mean, coming out of the zero COVID policy, President Xi's facing, you know, difficulties. They've got slow growth in China. They've got high debt to GDP ratio. They've got aging demographics. They need something to get the economy humming again, or at least to to soften the blows that are coming from this economic headwinds. And I think that the U.S. is the partner that they need in that. 
I just want to talk about the journey we've been on so far with China because the market uh, has been so fixated on this reopening theme. It's been so positive for exposures around Chinese asset classes. And then as we rounded out the week, the tech story seemed to come back in a big way. Huawei, the reminder about just how badly uh, that impacted the Chinese economy in certain tech areas. And then that's going to go further potentially. And now as we rounded out the week, the shooting down of this balloon, it does feel uh, that the Chinese too are also warning about uh, repercussions here, similar situations. They haven't given us any colour about what that means. Doesn't that suggest that we've got a very different China now that we're talking about versus, say, 10 days ago around this euphoric mood around the reopening theme? Possibly. And uh, although I think that the, the saber rattling, the aggression that you mentioned is, is kind of natural to the, to the diplomatic dance that's being done here. I think that where we are is not as much... Uh, of it's certainly not a kinetic war. It, we're not. It may not even be a purely trade war. I think it's more of a tech war, and I think that that's been the U.S. position since since 2018, when the Trump administration basically they wrote in the national security uh, position paper that China and the U.S. are in a global struggle for technological dominance. And, and right now, the field of play for that dominance is semiconductors, is microchips, and that's why the big impact was on Huawei as the U.S. took a number of steps to limit the 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 items and the, the technology for the design and, and development of semiconductors that could be sent to China. Reid, um, just a final one for me, really. I mean, is there a conspiracy theory that logically the Chinese actually wanted the Americans to take some form of aggressive action? I mean, floating a blooming great balloon the size of three buses over Montana. I mean, you'd have to be a bit dumb for them to not think the Americans would spot this thing eventually as well and potentially take this kind of action as well. So are there parties in China, you think, actually who designed this whole thing so that actually relations don't improve between the US and China? It's a good question, and and the and the motivations. Uh, you take me a bit out of my depth in in, in assessing the motivations of, of behind either side. But I want I, I, again because of the of how obvious, how evident this balloon was. It it seems to me very clear that it's a diplomatic dance. That there that China says, all right, are, is the U.S. going to accept this pretty evident violation, but not threatening violation of of international sovereignty? Uh, and still talk to us? No, they're not. Okay, we know where that line is. Now I think there'll be some saber rattling. I think both sides will go back to their corners and then they'll find a way again to get back to the table to discuss because really the economics driving this are what's going to bring these two together in my view. Thank you very much indeed. I think we did very well though. We've got enough satellite technology and uh, obviously plenty on the China-US relationship. So thank you, Reid Witten, partner at Shepard Mullen as well. And you know, I was saying to you that I understood that the most powerful military surveillance satellites in the world yeah. can spot fingerprints. You disputed that. I, I have got it down to five or six inches apparently. Okay. So the most powerful satellite, and this is what they're telling us. What about the stuff People they're not telling us? Big hands then. So, so, well, that is five or six inches, isn't it? Yes. Uh, so the most powerful satellite in the world yes. can see my hand very clearly. Obviously not in this building. No. So I was <laughs> going to take this in a slightly different uh, direction because I was talking to someone was, oh, yeah. who does hobby ballooning. <laughs> and um, What, as part of your research? Well, yeah, it just so happened that I have a, a family member who did some ballooning uh, in the past. And, Let's get them on. And, and the interesting them? point that they made, which I hadn't thought about, was you could actually have just shot this with a gun and brought it down slowly. Instead, what did they do? They fired a missile. For a very it. expensive US uh, fighter jet. Exactly, which was inevitably going to blow up the balloon and yeah. make it difficult perhaps to oh. recover the array so they don't in a single want... piece. So why didn't they just fire uh, bullets into it? until it 
deflated enough that it fell gently. In an, like an Elmer Fudd type way. Well, something like that. I don't know. That was a blunderbuss, wasn't it? But, I mean, you know, unless, unless he's talking rot. But quite frankly, firing a missile into this thing was only going to end one way, wasn't yeah, it? No, in terms it's of the, isn't it? Uh, in terms of the, 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 you know, the, the structure of the balloon and its integrity as it came down to earth. So let's just take that the extra mile then. Was this about right. some sort of show of force, don't send any more balloons down over our way because we will shoot them out of the sky? Is that the messaging? Like well, it does seem a bit action. overreaction. I mean, Biden is getting some heat domestically over this, isn't he? Why was it allowed to travel across the United States for so many days yeah. before you actually took it down? And obviously the argument being made is this was about protecting life on the ground yeah, because this thing, this array, is the size of three double-decker buses, mm. effectively, in terms terms of length. But I mean, it's an interesting question, you know, because it's not the first time that questions have been asked about Biden's willingness to use force to achieve a foreign policy aim. And we know the Republicans are desperately trying to turn the tide in terms of uh, political sentiment ahead of the presidentials. Yeah, the safety issue has been certainly the line that the Biden administration has gone with, but did it go over large chunks of empty land anyway? To your point, could it have been taken down there using a gunshot? So right. <laughs> clearly there are some question marks here. I have nothing to offer. If only they had Tom Cruise in a jet who could have just uh, done something really slick. I noticed the aviators <laughs> that Biden was wearing, and what else do you wear when you're on the tarmac on a story like this? I, I think you guys are having way too much fun with this story. Um, serious diplomatic implications, you know, apparently. Right, uh, coming up on the show, here we go, alliteration galore, the January jobs juggernaut. I'm going to say that again, it's so good. The January jobs juggernaut. Uh, last month's job report crushed expectations. In fact, the expectations were woefully wrong. I wonder what we pay all these people for. Anyway, more after the break. Is there a good podcast today? It is uh, vintage tensions between the US and China. You can check that out on the Squawk Box podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Bank of Japan Deputy Governor Masayoshi Amamiya has uh, reportedly been highlighted as a potential successor to Haruhiko Kuroda to lead the central bank. The yen slumped after the Nikkei reported that he had been sounded out as the next governor. It says the Japanese government is in the final stages of the decision-making process. Uh, Amamiya has, uh, is seen as more dovish than the other contenders in the running at this stage. Um, JP Ong joins us with more. Um, interesting reaction in the Nikkei this morning, JP. Indeed, and on a day when you see most of the investors here in Asia, at least, fretting over the prospect of higher rates in the U.S., you see Japanese markets and Japanese equities sticking out as a rosy thumb, for lack of a better term. The Nikkei 225 in the green as everybody else wilts into the red. And really, this supported by that news report you were talking about. Masayoshi Amamiya, the deputy governor 
of the Bank of Japan has apparently been approached and sounded out about possibly taking over from Haruhiko Kuroda when he steps down on April 8th. Now, it's fair. we have to be fair to say that some folks in the Japanese cabinet have actually said that they have not heard of this news. They cannot confirm if this did indeed happen. But if it does mean that Amamiya could become the next governor of the Bank of Japan, it could also mean that the ultra-loose policy that the Bank of Japan has maintained with regards to negative rates and having that yield curve control as well might persist because he is seen also as one of the key architects of that massive asset purchase and bond buying program they started in the earlier part of last decade. And this you can see also lending some support to or at least a lending to weakness for the Japanese yen. If you take a look at where the currency there is trading at the moment, it has weakened to just above 131 against the greenback. And as we know, that old adage, that old um, dynamic in, uh, in, in Japanese equities, whenever the yen weakens, it's seen as being um, a support, at least for most exporters in Japan, it's really playing out for a certain number of sectors in Japan, auto stocks, um, electronic stocks, all doing quite well. In fact, one of the only uh, laggards right now in Japan is the financials index, because no bank really likes the thought of having negative rates, thus further compressing some of their net interest margins. But they're the only ones that are actually sticking out as a sore thumb across this, this confident move up for many Japanese equities. I do want to end with this, though. Despite the fact that the yen has weakened, we are seeing a bit of pushback, at least in the bond markets. We did see most of these bond yields across the yield curve actually stay up pat. In fact, we did see earlier this morning that the Japanese JGB 10-year yields actually went up by about half, by about 50 basis points um, in today's session. And this also showing that bond traders perhaps also still pushing back against this narrative. They are holding out perhaps on hope that maybe we could see a further widening of that yield curve control policy and perhaps even a, uh, an abandonment of some sorts or a, or, a, or a scaling back of this ultra-loose policy. So again, not everyone is united in Japanese markets with regards to what this will actually mean. But so far, the fact that Amamiya might be one of the front runners as the next Bank of Japan governor could mean that ultra-low rates might be here for a little longer uh, than we'd actually expect. Folks, it's back to you. All right. Super. JP, thank you very much indeed for your time. So let's just take a very quick look at where these US markets finish the session uh, on Friday. A lot of this you'll be aware of by now if you actually looked at the market report over the weekend. So you'll see that the Nasdaq got a pummeling down 1.6%, the S&P down 1% and the Dow down 0.41%. And yet, and yet the market absolutely loved in the round what it heard last week. Take a look at the S&P, for instance, up 1.6%. Uh, for the week is what I thought it was. Anyway, it says uh, 2.95 there, but I think it was a, had a solid old rally anyway. The Nasdaq also had uh, a decent sized rally for the week as well. And we'll take a look at that. Again, that's slightly bigger than the figure I saw as well. I think maybe they might have even be, been before uh, these moves on Friday as well. But we did see solid gains. But the one I'm most interested in, and it wasn't technology stocks, it wasn't the bounce back of all kinds of tech stocks that got pummeled. Actually, it was the transports. So if you have a look at what the transports did last week, huge, huge rallies uh, on these markets, especially grassroots US industrial companies having a, a very solid time. The Dow actually was a notable exception, down 0.2 of 1% uh, for the week. 11 out of 11 sectors were down on Friday, but for the week, we saw 8 out of 11 sectors rallying, up 5.3% for the week, despite the fact... And this is interesting that the dollar index rallied 1.2% on Friday. It was up over a percent for the week. So really solid gains there as well. Uh, we saw the oil um, stocks absolutely getting a pummeling on the back of the oil price 
falling aggressively. And that's despite, as you heard in our headlines, the fact is the IEA is saying that the Chinese reopening could act as a catalyst uh, for more demand and actually more need for supply. Well, who'd have thought that, eh? Gosh, nice one from the, my friends at the IEA. Let's have a look at the Asian indices and where they're currently trading at the moment. We have a 2.3% decline on the Hang Seng. That is the standout uh, opening or op standout opening gambit for the week uh, on the Asian indices. Uh, the um, US futures, let's have a quick tech, uh, look at where they are currently trading and we are looking at a mild compounding uh, of the declines there. Karen. Well, earnings from Amazon, Alphabet and Apple all disappointed, yet the tech rally continues with the Nasdaq up 15% already this year. For more on what investors are looking at away from the bottom lines, check out CNBC.com. And January's US jobs report crushed all expectations with non-farm payrolls posting their biggest gain since July 2022, increasing 517,000, far ahead of the 187,000 expected. The unemployment rate eased to 3.4%, the lowest since May 1969, when the Beatles topped the charts and before Neil Armstrong took man's first steps on the moon. As one economist wrote, like $20 bills on the sidewalk and free lunches, Falling inflation uh, paired with falling unemployment is the stuff of economics fiction. Well, President Biden said the January report is proof his plan is working. For the past two years, we've heard a chorus of critics write off my economic plan. They said it's just not possible to grow the economy from the bottom up and the middle out. They said we can't bring back American manufacturing. They said we can't make things in America anymore. That somehow adding jobs was a bad thing. Well, or that the only way to slow down inflation was to destroy jobs. Well, today's data makes crystal clear what I've always known in my gut. These critics and cynics are wrong. While we may face setbacks along the way, and there will be some, there are more work to do, it's clear. Our plan is working because of the grit and resolve of the American worker. So I think in some ways a shock for quarters of the market that had set its assumptions around what we're going to see in this data point. And it was always going to be tricky, but I didn't think anyone expected a big blowout number to the upside. Even if we're around the 200,000 mark, that would be enough to keep it uh, still in very difficult territory for the Fed that has been wanting a print of closer to 150,000 to suggest that we've got a normalisation in the jobs market. So this number, well and truly not what uh, anyone anticipated. So in terms of the pricing expectations now around what happens, we went from one more interest rate hike to two. I think some of those expectations around some sort of a cut even later this year have simply been dashed, which uh, does set the scene. What do you do with the tech sector? Do you uh, steer clear of some of the growth areas still? I mean, look, the bears are completely wrong at the moment. Let's get this right. Those who called uh, for the death of growth are wrong at the moment. But they're actually changing their rhetoric, saying this is not what sustainable rallies are built on as well. These companies are not good value. They aren't good value historically. So, so the market is wrong. That is what the bears are saying at the moment. But it's becoming very, very difficult for those who called for a recession and an earnings recession to mean big market declines uh, and down to, what is it, on the S&P, 3,000, 3,300. Well, they are looking woefully wrong at the moment. And it's a very difficult place for them to be. We've got a guest coming up on this show in the next hour who said the Fed wouldn't raise at all this year. Well, that guess is completely wrong already so it's a very difficult place to be but there is and, I, and I'm reading I, I didn't have to tell you I told Jeff on air on uh, I'm, I'm piling through David Copperfield at the moment from Charles Dickens uh, and, and Dickensian names are brilliant as we all know they're the best and 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 Messrs lagged and cumulative 
well, it sounds like a, a, a Dickensian lawyer firm, a legal firm, uh, lagged and cumulative. But that's what uh, people are saying. That's what the Fed's saying is still to come. What about the cumulative effect of these rate hikes when it comes through? Because we're having a lagged effect on that as well. And I think that is what the bears are clinging on to. The fact is that there are parts of the US market, i.e. the housing market, industrials, uh, some of the transportation concerns as well, that actually are showing signs of weakness. But the market at the moment is showing no signs of weakness and the employment market you know with a now a rolling three-month average of 356,000 jobs created uh, on, per calendar month at the moment which is a huge huge figure it's the, the the overall trend is enormous as well and people are getting it badly wrong Dickens was a wonderful commentator I think in the economic times that he, he lived really in was, and yeah. it, it, all of his books have some economic lessons in them which is which is which is very interesting and it, it's sort of back to where we are now because the um, headlines deceive don't they um, the golden cross we're now talking about a technical golden cross on the S&P 500 which is described as when the 50-day moving average moves above its 200-day moving average and Reuters had a very good write-up on that this morning and of course why people are getting excited since 1950 Every time you've had a golden cross, the 12-month return after that, on average, has been 10.5%. The, um, uh, the, 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 the clear message from the headlines and from the market numbers is that we're going to continue to grind higher from here. But we all know that there are problems around the analysis, and JP Morgan had their own piece out a couple of days ago talking about how we've now got these low frequency buy signals that are being triggered by things like the Golden Cross, but they are skeptical, arguing that these are effectively bull traps because of the nature of the, 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 nature of the sectors that are rallying here. And the problem is that um, a lot of the businesses that are going up in value are low quality, heavily shorted stocks. Yeah. Which again, you know, suggests to you that there's something peculiar about the nature of the behaviour of the markets. And without good fundamental justification on earnings growth, then you become very sceptical. And I was talking to Steve this morning about a, a very interesting piece um, that came from a freight magazine that I was looking at. Um, cardboard box demand plunging at rates unseen, that, unseen since the Great Recession. And this according to the American Forest and Paper Association and Fiber Box Association. This report coming out at the end of January. Yeah. And of course, when you look at these coincidental indicators at the grassroots level for economies, you say to yourself, hang on a second, there's something that doesn't quite add up here. And we are going to find out ultimately whether this is a trap, whether this bull run is a trap that's going to suck retail investors in. Yeah. But there are so many other things that are, are anomalous at the moment. If we're so excited about the China reopening, why isn't the oil price going up even harder? It um, plummeted 9%, 8% last week. If global growth is so strong, why are oil prices flat or falling? Mm -hmm. um, if the yield curves are inverted, that tells you there's a recession coming, but we've not got a recession at the moment. So there are all sorts of peculiar things going so, on here. I think the, the best advice for most people would be run your stops tight until you have real clarity as to whether this is a proper full-blown 
hook, claw and teeth rally. What you're alluding to is more complexity effectively and you know this whole lag effect and Friedman was writing about it too but you think in this day and age there wouldn't be as much lag. If you think about all the legal contracts and, and how quickly decisions can translate into actual outcomes you think these days the lag would be shorter than in the old days but that seems to not be the, uh, the, the issue this time around. We still see this lag effect and I, I think you know you piece together all the headlines we've been reading across January about all the layoffs that have been happening at various companies. Why is that not starting to have an impact or why is it not showing up in the official data yet? Are we uh, setting up for a whole bunch of revisions down the track on this payrolls figure? Uh, that's key but you know if you go back to market positioning the signals you got Friday is that you know you could possibly go back into growth, back to your point about the bear market trade being wrong. But if you go back into those growth areas and you get more interest rate hikes than intended in a policy mistake, then loading up on growth will be the wrong strategic move on asset positioning. So it is incredibly complex as to how you put those trades on at this stage. Do you want a a Dickens quote from David Copperfield on money? Annual income, £20. Annual Mm. expenditure, £19, 19 shilling and sixpence. Result, happiness. Mm. Annual income, £20. Annual expenditure, £20, naught and six. Result, misery. I.e., live within your means and you'll be fine. If you don't, then the misery results. And I'm afraid, has this market been living beyond its means is still the very relevant question. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.